I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. Welcome back to Pushback Talks. We've been doing quite a few now. I think this is like, could be episode 41. This is like our pandemic hobby. And Leilani, a few weeks ago, we talked about Ireland. Remember, with Rory Hearn? I do remember. And I've been following Ireland since. Some interesting things going on there. As a matter of fact, uh, I learned that... um, After our episode with uh, Rory, um, a new community that had been built with homes that were meant for first-time home buyers has been purchased. About 135 of the 170 homes were purchased by Round Hill Capital, obviously some kind of asset management firm, some kind of international corporation, and they're turning those homes into rental accommodation that will be, of course, very expensive. Uh, But what's really interesting is it has sparked a huge outrage and movement. This is just outside of Dublin. And people are really demanding the right to housing and that the Constitution be opened up and the right to housing be included. So this one purchase has sparked a huge amount of energy. I've seen it on Twitter. It's been, and there's a lot of personal stories coming out, personal experiences. And so it's, it is cool that people start to be active and to fighting for their right to a dignified home. Really cool. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me over the years how I got to meet uh, you, Leilani. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the secret is, of course, that it all went through Brazil. You know, it's, it's in Brazil everything starts, and also how I met you. But let's take it from the beginning. I wanted to introduce you uh, to, you know, in 2015, I premiered a film called Bike Versus Cars, and it's partly set in Sao Paulo. And here, listen, here's a little scene from Bike Versus Cars. My name is Raquel Rowney. I am an urban planner, professor for urban planning in the Faculty of Architecture and Urbanism of the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I just hate to drive. Watch it. Oops. <laughs> Hello, Raquel. Welcome yeah. to to welcome to Pushback Talks, Raquel. It was, I mean, when I met you in Sao Paulo in 2013, it was, uh, you totally blew my mind. You, as always, you had very short time, but you delivered such amazing understanding of of city planning. And you are a professor at the, at the University of Sao Paulo, and you're still very active in i mean if i google your name you're you're like everywhere and involved in in the brazilian debate but also in the international debate and you were the predecessor of leilani farah as the un special rapporteur of adequate housing so actually it's true and i mean the film is the push is very much about financialization and the first time i heard that expression was from you so you are like 
the master of everything. So um, <laughs> so cool to have you here and have you here together with Leilani. How, so how did you meet the first time, Leilani and Raquel? Raquel, how did we meet? I think we met online. Raquel was doing an amazing work on women and the right to housing. Mm-hmm. I think it's the first time we met. Uh, but of course, everyone knows Raquel and her work was amazing as rapporteur and beyond. Raquel, you and just a few years ago, just before the pandemic, you released a new book called Urban Warfare, Housing Under the Empire of Finance. You're a leading voice in, in this global debate, Raquel, but you're also... We met in Sao Paulo now in 2019, just before the pandemic, where we had mm-hmm. premiere of PUSH. And we talked about push in the context of, of the Brazilian realities. How, how do you see that? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. We are trying to get together in this podcast for months, I think. Mm. <laughs> But yes, we are, the three of us, so much engaged in the struggle for the right to housing that we don't have time to talk about that. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. And let's um, start by saying that we are living a global uh, housing crisis. And of course, the global housing crisis has different expressions, different faces in different places. And let's start by seeing from Sao Paulo, from seeing from the periphery of capitalism, uh, what's going on. And yes, We are seeing that the pandemic is, of course, this is everywhere, but it's especially true here in Brazil, where we combine the sanitary crisis with an economic crisis that was already there before the pandemic, and it was aggravated by the pandemic, a government that denies, first of all, denies the the pandemic, denies the existence of the pandemic, a government that didn't um, really, uh, was not engaged in uh, prevention uh, of, of the pandemic, especially for the poor, with very much neoliberal approach to economy and development, which means that uh, Basically, during this crisis, the government follows a austerity policy of not spending money in order to protect the most vulnerable. And one of the topics that people are suffering more here in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, and I could say also in many, many other countries uh, in the periphery of capitalism, is housing. Why? Because, first of all, uh, without money, uh, there is a lot of people that don't have access to housing in the formal market, that do have access eventually to housing in informal market, including rental informal markets, and with the pandemic are not able to pay anymore, either pay for the mortgage, if there is a mortgage for a small part of the population is true because we had a big program here in Brazil of provision of housing through credit, uh, My House, My Life program years ago, 
or it's unable to pay rent anymore. So what we are seeing is massive, again, a new wave of squatting land and buildings in a, in a very precarious way, and a new wave of evictions uh, because of this new wave of squatting buildings and land. And just to finish this, this picture, it's very important to point out that a very important movement, national movement, now it's truly national, Zero evictions movement, despejo zero. It's very important because it's relating different groups, different organizations in different parts of the country in order to get a moratorium on evictions during the pandemic. And the movement have succeeded already to approve a law in the Congress, which is now under discussion in the Senate. But also, wow, that's kind of a big victory. Yeah, and also local state laws at the state level, because Brazil is a federation. So in Sao Paulo, for instance, also there is a law under discussion that was approved uh, already, but needs sanction of uh, the government. So, I mean, there is some victories. There is some victories in the judiciary. Some judges are being... Um, uh, collaborating. Um, it's very important, the role of public defenders that are part of the uh, of the eviction campaign. So I think it's contradictory, but the good news is that as, as the example that you were giving about Ireland and Dublin, a very important, the issue of housing came into the political agenda and a new wave of organizations around the right to housing are on the race. And I can see, um, I can say that that is also true um, for Argentina, that is also true um, uh, for Chile, in which housing is a new topic in the Constitution. So I think that it's coming again. At the same time, the new wave of financialization, which is true rent and rental housing, is just arriving also. The financialization of housing through rental housing is just landing here in Sao Paulo, in Santiago, Chile, in Mexico. Uh, so I think, again, we have the combination of, of all this process at the same time. There is a lot cooking in Brazil and South America, and, and I, mean, it's, I mean, I've I've been a lot to Brazil and also, of course, many other countries in South America. It's the the social movements are really strong, and the the alliance they have also with people like scholars at the universities and so on. It's 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 very powerful, and and it's amazing that they, during Bolsonaro administration, still can push through laws in 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 the Senate. That's really cool. A new generation of political representatives are being uh, voted and getting into the crown. It's, it's a very small minority, but still it's a minority coming from social movements, coming from the peripheries, coming from, from low-income territories, popular territories, um, led by black women um, from the favelas, from the peripheries. And this is, it's, it's also promising. What I, what I find also so inspiring from much of Latin America and what Raquel just described is 
the way in which social movements, grassroots movements, aren't afraid to be demanding new and better legislation. In, in North America, those are often quite separate activities. Over there, some lawyers and some people, uh, some advocates are calling for legislation, but the and the grassroots movements are a little bit separate. I love this total combination because I think that's how you will. Well, and look, the you already said you're having good effect with your zero evictions campaign, also through legislation, mobilization and legislation. I am interested to know, Raquel, what does the legislation say? Is it is it zero evictions? forever? Is it for just the period of the pandemic and a few years afterward? Or how, how does it look? Um, the legislation is a suspension or a moratorium just during uh, the worst months of the pandemic in which the state of calamity is established by the government, the state of emergency, just for that and nothing else. Uh, having said that, is also very important to understand the the relationship between social movements and legislation and political movements and legislation in Brazil because it's tricky. Uh, it's true from one side that uh, since the late 70s, uh, the movement for urban reform, which indeed, like Frederick has pointed out, uh, brought together intellectual activists, social movements, uh, researchers, lawyers, um, um, architects, urban professionals together in order to defend a new um, mode of building cities uh, during the struggle against dictatorship in Brazil. And that succeed to insert into the constitution um, the right to housing and other progressive legislation. And from that point on, a very important movement around the renovation of the regulatory framework for cities through urban planning and other uh, bylaws and legislation what took place uh, during decades. But it's important to say that now, if we do a balance of what having succeed with that, the balance is not that promising. Because despite the fact that the Constitution affirms the right to housing, despite the fact that it's written there that the basic principle of urban planning is social function of property and social function of cities, that does not mean in practice a lot. That, after so many years, I can say that it's more, much more, a, a tool for social movements to struggle, including in the courts, <laughs> than uh, actually a tool that was mobilized by public policies in order to implement a very important change. Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm, it's like Amazonas. It keeps burning, you know, even if it's not allowed, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it, it keeps yeah, burning. Yeah. It keeps evictions out every day. Governments promote evictions. So you have this very, and I think that that has to do also the 
with with the cultural tradition, uh, cultural tradition and legal tradition uh, in Brazil, where legislation, I would say, is a reference. <laughs> it's not something that you have to enforce. It's something there which is disputed in a very discretionary way. So powerful people can use that in their behalf. But having said that, it's not that it's useless. Of course not, not at all. It's very important for the battles and it's, and, and it's social movement use that as one of the tactics uh, and one of the tools. And of course it's not the only one and sometimes during the discussion of, of the last discussion of uh, urban master plan in sao paulo um, the housing movements have seized and squat the streets around the city council for one month in order to approve some new tools uh in the master plan which after five years now, we are doing the best. We're not implemented as well. The struggle is is ongoing, and it's 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 and it makes a difference, Leilani. Yeah, I I was actually going to um, ask a question, uh, one more question about uh, Bolsonaro and his his impact on the informal settlements in particular, because. When you're on the outside of Brazil and all, all I'm reading is The Guardian and news like this, what I've been hearing is the continued criminalization of informal settlements. I mean, there was the big case in Rio uh, where um, the police went in. There was a, basically a massacre going after um, Jacare, the drug lords, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, et cetera. And I'm just wondering, so that's what we're reading on the outside is, has there been more of this heavy-handed criminalization of informal settlements generally, or are we just hearing this one story and it's, you know, I mean, I mean obviously, in, it, at the best of times in most countries, people living in informal settlements are treated often as encroachers, as you know, Raquel, uh, land grabbers, as uh, mm -hmm. criminals, mm -hmm. illegals, occupiers. I'm just wondering if Bolsonaro has really um, increased that perception um, or, or, or not really. That needs a more complex answer to that. Because first of all, it's structural in the Brazilian urban development as well that relates to Brazilian political structure. The fact that there is a ambiguity in regard uh, to the existence and permanence of low-income settlement that I would to call popular territories like favelas, like uh, self-promoted housing, uh, and their, their ambiguity in relation um, uh, to the state, it's like uh, uh, that condemns the those places to a state of permanent temporariness forever because in one way it's very clear according to planning rules that this is illegal this is informal that cannot be there but at the same time politically um, the continuation and urbanization and upgrading of those settlements it's a very important important political asset, which uh, the whole political system uses in a very discretionary way 
in order that at the same time maintain the ambiguity and taking advantage from that trading investments and permanence through votes. But at the same time, maintaining the stigmatization of those places. The stigmatization of those places means for the, for the political economy of the city, uh, the demarcation of a perimeters in the city where a parallel market and a parallel state connect. What is a parallel market? Is the drug dealing, smuggling, and other other types of of markets like that that have license to act in these places, but at the same time, uh, the violent and repressive face of the state, like dead squats, dead squats uh, that are part of the police, that are part of the security system. It's a part of the state, but it's I would say the dark side of the state that can enter that and can enter that without respecting any laws, any laws in terms of including the laws in, in terms of procedures. So what happened last, last week or two weeks ago, which is very, very common, is a police riot in a favela uh, without respecting police procedures, which is Taking, taking the people that were dead and, and opening a process, a legal process, in order to judge them and then eventually condemn, go to prison. No, the police enter there shooting and eliminating the people. And this is very common. But again, this is very important also to say that uh, the organization of favelas in Rio they got, for the first time, I think, in, in the history, a agreement at the Supreme Court that those police rights were forbidden during the pandemic, and the government didn't respect that. Why Bolsonaro government is aggravating this situation? Because one part of the coalition that sustains Bolsonaro is the military police safety and also private private security forces coalition related uh, to the idea that is very nice to arm the, the, the uh, to arm uh, uh, guards in order to protect families very similar to Trump and one of the parts that sustained uh, uh, that sustained Trump so the fact that bolsonaro in he is from Rio, his family is from Rio, and they are absolutely related. They belong to militia. They belong to dead squads, the president itself and his family. So, of course, that reinforces that, but reinforces something that is structural. It's structural. It's always there. It's, it's scary. I mean, Brazil is such a lovely country and there's so many amazing people and there is so many abilities and strength in Brazil and then at the same time you you have this violence that is uh, and and I would say that poverty is the worst violence that we see in Brazil because the poverty is also very obvious I was going to ask you something else to both of you because I think you've both been the UN special rapporteur on adequate housing that's, that's an experience you will both. You had six years out there traveling the world, 
looking into these issues. And now, I mean, Leilana, you stopped a year ago. Raquel, you stopped seven years ago. But you're still talking about housing. So is this an issue you can't run away from? Is that like your destiny, both of you? <laughs> how do you see, how do you look back to your experience of, as the UN Special Rapporteurs? No, let me just make a, a, a small amendment uh, to your conclusion after my description of, of Brazil. Um, I think that um, you, you, you have pointed out poverty as the main driver. Um, I would point racism because I think, and I and I don't think this is particular to Brazil. I think that we can read also um, U.S. very clearly how much um, how much the uh, neighborhoods, the projects, the places that are lived by black communities, and not only uh, not only in the U.S. but I I would say non-white communities in many, many other places are the object of discretionary policies and necropolitics in terms of not considering as human beings. And I think this is very, very important. And it's important to say that because I think that to bring the issue of racism uh, on the table, uh, when we are talking about housing and we are talking about urban, we have to talk about racism because Racism also structures um, the way uh, cities are organized and segregated. But uh, to respond to your question, long before I was rapporteur, I was involved already in housing. Because, yes, housing is very important for urban, housing and urban. Housing, normally 70% of the urban tissue is residential. So I think it's so, so central to the destiny of, of uh, people. And at the same time, I used, to, I used to say a lot when I was rapporteur that housing is not four walls and a roof over your, uh, over, over your head. Housing is, is a kind of a portal to other human rights, to other, other um, ways of, of, of living. So it's essential for life. Uh, that's why um, I think I am totally in the housing field and the right to housing field, but in more in this uh, uh, broad way. Uh, the, the years of being rapporteur were a privilege that um, they, they provide me a possibility of enlarging my view uh, and have a global uh, reading of, of the situation. I think that is very important because we are dealing with the global phenomena. We cannot discuss housing um, in a particular city or country anymore. But I think that I, I will continue and I, I am continuing continuously engaged in this struggle. And I guess that Leila need the same, no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've always done housing my entire working life. So uh, from the, as soon as I emerged from law school, uh, one of the f first places I worked was a housing and discrimination uh, 
organization in Toronto. And from there, I actually spent time in Palestine. And at the time, the Palestinians um, were really um, not focused on social and economic rights and the right to housing. They were, of course, um, looking at their situation from a civil and political rights point of view. And I was there at a time when um, the right to housing was starting to get some currency. People were starting to talk about it. And it was so clear that the Palestinian struggle was also a right to housing struggle and a land struggle. And so um, so I, that's how I actually got involved um, in the international side of things and quickly learned that there's has to be a really nice relationship between what happens at country level and what and the international level a constant feeding back and forth between international and domestic and then of course being rapporteur well i remember something raquel told me raquel passed the baton to me in a very nice way i went to sao paulo visited with her and she explained the role to me and but one of the things she said i will never forget and raquel i don't know if you remember saying it to me but it still makes me laugh she said you know six years as rapporteur I've become so radical. I can barely stand myself. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand what Raquel was getting at because it gives you this opportunity to see all of the structural problems, all of them, and, and how deeply embedded in every society, discrimination, racism, um, all of the inequalities, you know. So you become naturally quite radical you have to there's no you have no choice there's there's no other it's like you reach consciousness you can't you can't pretend you didn't see and it pushes you towards a a more uh, critic way of 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 dealing with that and that had influenced a lot my own professional life because for many many years uh before being being the rapporteur I was involved in uh, uh, municipal management, uh, also in public policy at state level, at national level. I was the national secretary for urban programs for the Ministry of Cities. So I was engaged in the institutional level trying to implement public policies, urban and, and housing policies. But um, after, <laughs> after my mandate, I became much more critical on the limits and possibilities of working through the state and through public policies and much more related to social movements and civil society movements. And because, I mean, the picture is so overwhelming. The discourse is so different from reality. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, I, I mean, I mean you've, you were a part of my Bike versus Cars film, which is about almost like a lobby-driven city planning. So, and it's also this kind of, if you go and, and look into the, 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 the global patterns, you will see it repeated over and over again. And it's the same with, with the housing situation. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, it is what you two have been through to see it from a global perspective makes it also easy, clearer. To, you see the local picture clearer. And I think that's it. It helps the overall debate that we that that that's why it's so important that 
that your voices are so important that you keep going. And I, I think that's it's really cool. And it's really cool that you're that we talk together again. Yeah, and no, and I was and I was very, very and I have to say that I, I was very, very grateful to Leilani uh, because she when I passed I, when I passed the the baton to, to Leilani, she really got it. I mean she really continued the work on financialization, which was, which I think it was very, very, very important uh, to do, something to do. Um, and also the work that I started very, very, uh, I involved a lot my mandate in communication. So this podcast and everything and the film and everything was a very meaningful effort uh, from the part of Leilani and also with you, Frederick. Uh, in order to make all these things visible. Because, yes, we are discussing in the Human Rights Council, everybody's sleeping there, nobody's paying attention. I mean, everything is caught in the geopolitical game, but still, this content is very important for the people who are engaged on that. So I think that go beyond, to go beyond the sphere of the institutional sphere with the discussion is very important. And I was very glad that Leilani has done that in her mandate. And it was for my mandate, a very, very important uh, part of it. Well, people, um, our listeners may not know that Raquel came into the position at the time of the global financial crisis. So she, she has like one of the most seminal reports on financialization and these big actors in 08, I think it was Raquel, um, you know, this incredible report where in fact, she calls for the paradigm shift, that then we ran within my mandate, this need to change our understanding of housing, housing is so often just viewed as bricks and mortar and, and roofs and doorways, rather than the deep um, tentacles it has to finance. I mean, I, I, I know Raquel is the same, that we end up talking about finance as much as we do anything when we're talking about housing these days. I actually wanted to put to you, Raquel, I don't know if you saw a couple of days ago, a report came out from the IMF, and it was analyzing housing in the European context. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, for the listeners who don't know what the IMF is, uh, setting uh, financial policy globally, uh, fiscal policy globally, very much involved the IMF in austerity measures in Europe post-global financial crisis. So the IMF has concluded that housing is unaffordable in Europe now. <laughs> <laughs> that renters yeah, can no conclusion. yes exactly big conclusion renters can no longer afford housing and um, one of the things they say uh, is that um, measures obviously need to be taken to deal with affordability uh, they don't name the actors um, who've created the unaffordability they talk in very broad terms because one of the are, things they are, they, they are the, one of the actors themselves you mean Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Frederick. That's perfect. What the, one of the things, interestingly enough, they say is that all these vacant homes uh, that are scattered around uh, uh, Europe should be taxed. And I find it so interesting. I'm just interested as well to hear, Raquel, your opinion on this, because 
we know that the IMF um, was part of this whole golden visas program throughout uh, Europe uh, in the countries um, that had austerity measures imposed on them. So Greece, Cyprus, Malta, I mean, there's many, Turkey. And of course, the golden visa program has contributed to empty homes. Financialization has contributed to dark towers and empty homes. Um, So I found it interesting that the IMF has called for tax measures in this case. Do you think this is the IMF? Is it a mea culpa from the IMF? Is it? Uh... <laughs> um, no, I think that IMF has done as as all and most of the multilateral agencies. First of all, multilateral agencies are crucial on promoting the financialization of housing everywhere. This is true in the first wave, the promotion of homeownership, uh, the reform of financial system, housing financial systems, and uh, the intervention in housing financial and housing markets in that direction. Everywhere, everywhere. And now again, in the second wave, we see all these multilateral agencies promoting a institutional corporate new forms of rental housing. Everywhere, again, again. So they are absolutely involved on that. The fact that the IMF is considering uh, some of the some of, of the problems that were caused is a good sign. But I don't believe at all that that will bring a um, a big shift in finance um, and in international finance because uh, I see what is going on in different countries promoting again in a different way. In a different in a different form. I mean, the shifting from promoting home ownership uh, into promoting rental housing uh, and schemes through rental housing it's a good example of that. But having said that, also the fact that the IMF is recognizing some pitfalls, it's important because it's a result of the work of a lot of people, like to, the two of you, are, like the two of you. Now, no, but not more people that are researching, organizing, fighting, struggling again. And I think it's very, very, very important. I mean, I think there's a lot of hope. Raquel, give me, uh, give yeah. me a, a few sentences on why we should be hopeful. I think the pandemic, despite being something very dystopic in our lives, is revealing basic structures problems in our ways to provide, uh, I would say, building cities, building landscapes for rent, rent seeking landscapes, building cities and housing in order to provide new forms of extracting rent and interest from built space instead of building uh, cities and housing in order to protect life. And now, and I think that leaving the pandemic has shown the importance of ways of protecting and bringing public policies to protect life and around life. So I think that there is a very important dispute around reconstruction because we have two ways now, two possibilities. We can do everything again again in the name of jobs in the name of economic recovery and we we can do everything and all the errors again or we can learn 
from the pandemic. And I think it's, it's a dispute that is being disputed in every city, in every nation around reconstruction. We can rethink the way we organize housing and, and, and urban now. And it's a, a huge opportunity right now because I think the fact that it has been lived so deeply in the lives of everybody. We need a paradigm shift. And this is, Leilani, this is what you're working on. It is. It's time. And I totally agree with Raquel's um, summary and sort of the positive possibility coming out of the pandemic because now is the time everything's been exposed everything has been exposed in every society of how deeply unfair society is deeply unequal so we i i agree we have a choice which road are we going to take so thank you raquel for for being on pushback talks leilani it's kind of cool that we are we're flying around the world and, and meeting old friends very cool. Yeah. It's not always nice to be in conversation with Raquel. Yeah, she's a very sharp mind. And I, when I was hanging out with her in Brazil for, for the Bike versus Cars films, and, and I mean, it's, she can really, she's very, very focused in her way of ex explaining things. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we fund pushback talks? Yes, we need more numbers. We need more patrons. Mm. You so what, can what, so what become is a patron. Patreon? Yeah. You can support us monthly with just a few dollars so that we can keep going and, uh, you know, produce this podcast. So the link is always on every episode of uh, Pushback Talks and you can click on it and quickly and easily become a supporter. Yeah, and I could say to all supporters, the, 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 the patrons we have, and to new patrons, that I will, I will, I will give you bike versus cars, so you can watch Raquel. So there if you, go. if people That's who a nice one. join the, the coming week, you will get bike versus cars for free. Is that a amazing? Fine? Amazing! I love that, and it's okay. such a good film. It's fun. I mean, you will see Raquel driving cars in, in, in Sao Paulo, and that's like an experience. <laughs> it's the best part of the, of the film. <laughs> but anyway, it's fun. It's good. We, I, I, was, I was checking the, the countries. It's like that's my little hobby. Yes. And we are now up to 112 countries. We have people listening Incredible. to pushback talks in 112 countries. What's so, the new country, Frederick? So what's the Where new country? Is it? Yeah, it's Africa. Africa. And it's this time more east to the east, to like northeast. What could it be? It could be. It could be Sudan. It could be Sudan. It is Sudan. We already had South Sudan. So now we are all like now. And, and I know then that means that we have South Korea, that we now have, need to aim for North Korea. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But we don't have it yet. But it... It's still if we I mean, if you know, if you have friends in North Korea, tell them to listen to pushback talks. We want them in the stats. <laughs> yeah, it would be. I have no idea, actually, what's happening with housing in North Korea. So maybe mm. if we get a listener, they can mm. enlighten us. Yeah, and we, we, we were both together in South Korea and I've been there before. Yes, I actually went over the borders i've been like at the, the ah. this kind of the un spot at the dmc i've been mm -hmm. there so i walked into north korea and i posed together with north korean soldiers and so on 
Uh, they didn't really smile, but I mean, I did it anyway. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but that's sure you did. that's long time ago. So mm. it's. Uh, you know, I had an amazing experience in South Korea where I went to the highest court in South Korea, and there is on the court one seat that remains empty, and they're waiting for their North Korean friends to join them on the court. It's pretty mm. cool. Yeah, it's... Um that's we shouldn't go too deep into Korean politics, but it's let's say it's a it's a lovely nation and it's a lovely people and mm. and the food, my God, the food. But we should mm. do a Korea episode, I think, because we we have seen a lot there. Definitely. See you next week. Yeah. Take care and and and, uh, and be kind to the dog. Always. Don't don't walk too far. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good for him. That's being kind. Exercise. Okay. Push him out. <laughs> Ciao. Bye, Frederick. Take care. Bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week.